Knock, knock. Who's there? Woodlice. Woodlice who? Would you lice a new podcast about Doctor Who? Okay, this is why we're totally not doing a pun about knock-knock jokes for the title of this episode. I'm so sorry! Hi, this is Chip. This is Alyssa. And this is Rachel. And we are a full TARDIS team. Well, almost full. Tom, Tom's not here with us this time. But we're all here to talk about the news and talk about Knock Knock and do a bit of a check-in about how Series 10 is striking us uh, a third of the way through. How y'all doing? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, good weekend. It was a good weekend for Doctor Who as well. Let's get into the news real quick. Uh, Knock Knock had half a million more viewers than the last week, and it was the best show of the night for BBC One, according to Doctor Who News.net. So we keep sort of checking in on the ratings, but this has seemed to be a pretty popular season for Doctor Who, and I'm happy about that. Absolutely. Anecdotally, what I've seen more and more um, is a lot of people saying they're coming back to Doctor Who because the reviews have been so strong for the previous episodes. Um, So I can't point to anything uh, statistically proving that. uh, But every time I talk about it on Twitter or Tumblr, I have more and more people reaching out to me saying, I think I'm going to come back to Doctor Who now. This looks like it's really, really good. You know, I I haven't been hearing anything one way or the other, but I personally have been enjoying the series quite a bit and feel like at least so far, it's very steady. It's not kind of up, down, good, bad. It's it's been fairly steady, which is a good sign, I think. Kind of consistent. Yeah. Yeah. I will take that and we'll we'll get into we'll get into the whole season more. Um what sort of flummoxes me a little bit is about people saying that they're coming back to the show is I didn't think that it was I'm I'm really happy about the new dynamic between the between Bill and the Doctor. Um it's 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 nice to have a change in the companion seat, but you know, I've I've been enjoying Doctor Who ever since, you know, ever since it came back and I enjoyed it just as much. What's different as far as general audiences, maybe? Well, I think there's a new jumping on point, naturally. You know, if you weren't watching during the second half of Series 6 into, uh, no, sorry, Series 7, into the 50th, into Clara's first two seasons, there wasn't really a natural jump on point there. And there's a couple of reasons anecdotally I heard that people started dropping off watching. Um, One is that there was a lot of sort of in-depth Doctor Who stuff. And while that stuff can be really rewarding for fans who have been watching for a while or have taken the time to go back into classic Who... The depth of it sometimes felt a little off-putting for people who hadn't had the time or the ability or the interest in going that far back into Classic Who. I think the Doctor's relationship with Clara had at points been rocky in a way that put some people off of the show. And 
when Capaldi was introduced, they were really, really leaning hard into the, he is going to be an unlikable doctor. And we've had this discussion several times before about the difference between unlikable versus mean and where exactly series eight Capaldi fell on that spectrum. But I think if you were turned off within the first few episodes of Capaldi's tenure, you really didn't see the sort of character that he built out of that into series eight and series nine. And with series 10, if you decided to give it a new shot with the new companion, or you just kept hearing good reviews, you might have gone back at that point and gone, okay, no, actually, I do like his doctor. I think I am gonna give this a shot. So I think there's a lot of different factors uh, that could build into why some people didn't like earlier seasons, hadn't been watching earlier seasons, and are coming back now. There's also the very obvious, it's during the spring, it's at a better time slot, it's been a little bit more consistent with airing, and that's just better for getting uh, a lot of viewers to be watching the show right now. So I think that definitely helps. It's been interesting because to me, the beginning of the season, the, the pilot was not a good jumping on point for the show, but I think it may be a good jump back on point. Mm. That if you had never watched the show before, I think it would have been a really confusing place to start. But for people who get it, get the patterns, get how who the doctor is and the characters, but were interested in maybe seeing who this Bill person was, it was a great place to jump back on. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, speaking of jumping back on, this is going to be the most inarticulate segue ever. But if you'd <laughs> like to jump back onto Torchwood. Segway! <laughs> I'm probably the only person on this podcast who actually kind of enjoyed Miracle Day. Fairly safe in making that statement, right? Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I enjoyed a lot of it. I, I think the first half to two thirds of it, I enjoyed. It was just once the story kind of took shape and we figured out what was happening, then it kind of tanked a little bit. Yeah. So uh, Big Finish is having a good run of Torchwood uh, episodes and they're about to do a fifth series of them and they're actually going to be picking up after Miracle Day and Russell T. Davis is somewhat directly involved as a, as a consultant. And this actually makes me kind of happy. That's really interesting that Russell's coming back, but I was also particularly interested to see that Eve Miles is coming back to play Gwen because I seem to remember last spring, last February, maybe she was talking about leaving the character behind for good. I don't know. Maybe I missed a development over the past year that she, that she was coming back. Uh, but this this seems new and kind of noteworthy to me. I'm, I'm wondering what it was that convinced her to come back to the sh uh, play uh, Gwen Cooper again. She's so good. I, I, mean, I mean, she is. I love her to pieces. I think Gwen's the best thing about Torchwood. But I was surprised. I, I wonder what convinced her to come back. I guess the one thing that makes me a little sad about this, you know, nobody's ever really contemplated that uh, Torchwood was going to come back to television after, you know, th things went so quiet after uh, Miracle Day. Uh, the writing was pretty much on the wall. Uh, but even with it coming over to Big Finish... I still had it in the back of my head, you know, Chris Chibnall's taking over Doctor Who. Maybe uh, there's an outlet for Torchwood to show back up on the BBC or something like that. I think RTD involved in Torchwood for Big Finish, that's kind of the final nail in the coffin. If you're a Torchwood fan, this is where you want to go. 
yeah, I'll be curious to see uh, how it does and how they, uh, it sounds overly negative to say pick up the pieces, but I am curious to see how they pick up the pieces after Miracle Day and bring Torchwood back. I'm always happy to see Tom Price's name listed anywhere because PC Andy, (laughs) he's so great. He's so great. (laughs) Oh, and finally, uh, speaking of not having had a whole lot of time for about a week now, we've had a new rendition of the 12th Doctor. Uh, He's invaded a new uh, media format, and it's the one that Alyssa and Rachel and I are using right now. (laughs) Yeah, little Skype action. So it's a bot. Um, Yep. And I, and Rachel, you're the one of us who's had the chance to play with it a little bit. What is a Skype Doctor Who bot? You know, I wasn't really familiar with Skype bots in general, other than the Skype bot itself that sometimes talks to you. But uh, it's actually kind of interesting. I've only done the little setup portion where it introduces itself and then figures out who you are. Um, but it's kind of a quest mystery and so what i have done is that it um, introduced itself to me i i'm talking to the doctor and i'm using slang too and it's understanding what i'm saying but holy crap yeah so it asked if i wanted to fly the tardis and i said hell yeah (laughs) And, and it responded appropriately and um, you know, asked me what my name was and then doing a little quiz on the planets of our solar system with some clues there from the doctor. Um, but there, it's this mystery to find pieces of the key to time. So, oh, my God, they're bringing that back. Yeah. So there's like six fragments and uh, I'm assuming there's adventures all around, but they're starting with one in our solar system. So, so yeah, so I've done a little bit of math and a little bit of planet quizzes so far it sounds a little bit like an educational tool yeah a little bit i mean there was like the reason why the first fragment was near neptune but not on the planet so it was like why is that and so i responded it's made of gas (laughs) so you know and then i got good work rachel so it's it's personalized which is kind of cute and fun and you've you've got the voice of Peter Capaldi going straight into your ears. Yeah. I mean, you can you don't hear the voice, you just read it. Mm. It's like a chat, but then there's little little videos along the way too. Gotcha. It's Unless uh, there is a voice there that I just wasn't hearing, <laughs> but That sounds like a fascinating sort of low barrier game app to develop like they don't need to develop their whole app they just need to work with the existing skype bot sorry this is me getting nerdy as uh someone who's very interested in the development and use of apps to engage with people uh and it that's that's just a really interesting way to use an existing format to interact with people but i i know it sounds it's it's an interesting way to try to uh, reach people over skype i don't generally think of skype as being like you know, a prominent Doctor Who platform. So I don't, I wonder what made them decide to do it there. They knew that there are so many Doctor Who podcasters using Skype. Probably. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> uh, one last note about that is it's written by Joe Lidster, who's had a good long run of writing for Big Finish. He wrote an episode of Torchwood. There, there's Torchwood again, and three episodes of the Sarah Jane adventures. So he knows his Doctor Who. 
I'll have to give that a try this week once I, you know, have a chance to breathe. So that was the news that was for this week in time travel. Uh, Up next, let's talk about Knock Knock. So, of course, when I asked Rachel if she was available to join us for this episode to talk about Knock Knock, she sends a two-word email back to us. Who's Who's there? there? (laughs) And then I tried to uninvite her because we cannot have two people on this podcast making jokes and puns. Yeah. I did also send you the Mac Miller Knock Knock song video. So I thought that was a little bit better. Uh, That just made up for it. Earworms, nothing but earworms. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Thanks a lot. So what'd y'all think of it? I thought it was good. I thought, you know, nothing that I'm going to crave rewatching again. Um, I think something definitely I'd watch, you know, sitting through a binge watch. But, you know, a good, solid episode of Doctor Who. Um, I thought... The most terrifying thing personally was the search for student housing. I'm going to have like stress nightmares about that. Like years after I'm done with my student housing search, I'm still going to have a nightmare tonight about the horrible, awful search for student housing. And I'm going to remember all the terrible things I did and suffered to find affordable housing near my university. But uh, I think the most interesting bit at the end was with the vault uh, and Nardole and uh, the doctor and the piano playing entity behind the door having their little back and forth conversation. So there's some interesting threads to pull out of uh, what was hinted at there. Well, we'll come back to that, but there's a freaking piano in the vault. There is. So I'm not really a horror fan per se. So for me, I think it was like, I think they did a good job with it. For the most part, um, I wasn't sure about the wrap up at the end, but in terms of the, you know, the tension and, you know, if I'm going to watch a horror film, I like horror comedies. So I think there was enough levity in here to appeal to me, um, especially the banter between the doctor and Bill and the whole grandfather thing and him like hanging around too long. (laughs) Um, I think that sort of stuff definitely worked. And I think that, you know, actually until they showed the little bugs, the tension was great. Um, I actually didn't mind the little bugs too much. I thought, um, and we're going to go back to um, Kyle Anderson's uh, review at Nerdist in a little bit, but I thought one of the most interesting things he brought up was the way uh, when you started getting to the bugs and the, the people being sort of consumed. It was very uh, Guillermo del Toro-ish. And it was, I I didn't even make the connection with Guillermo del Toro's work as a whole. I was very specifically thinking about Pan's Labyrinth when I was watching that. And that's... Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's sort of about where my level of horror is. I don't usually go for the jump scares, uh, too much of the body horror uh, work. But Pan's Labyrinth, that sort of fantasy, uh, very... um, uh, this doesn't it doesn't see doesn't sound like exactly what I want to say, but the sort of earthy level of horror of like the things that nature can do. Uh, I thought that level of horror was very uh, interesting in it. I don't I agree with you. I don't really like the way the issue was sort of resolved. Um, the whole thing with the mother and the son and I don't it just it didn't quite work for me, but I sort I loved everything leading up to that reveal. 
let's actually uh, go back to Kyle's review because uh, one of the things that he and it was kind of a lukewarm review. Um, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But one of the things that he says is the problem with any time Doctor Who delves into horror is that it can never fully commit to it because it's Doctor Who and not actually a horror show. So, and, and Kyle's a big fan of classic horror movies and things like that. Oh, yeah. So if you're into if you're into horror, and you have Doctor Who just sort of tiptoeing toward it, uh, I I guess that that could be kind of frustrating. Uh, I'm not a big horror guy, but so that doesn't bother me nearly as much. Yeah, it's interesting um, you bring that up because I did not read Kyle's review, but that's exactly where it lost me because I'm like, oh, they're aliens. Shocking. You know, like it to me, the horror of it being something a little bit more abstract works a little better for me than knowing exactly what it is and it's an alien. Like it kind of reminded me of, oh, I'm totally blanking on the name of the episode, but it's the one with Eve Miles from the first season. Oh, the Gelf, uh, the oh, Unquiet the Gelf. Gelf. Yeah, where I'm like, oh, yay, it's aliens. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> again, so that's kind of why it didn't work for me. Um, yeah, but I don't know that Doctor Who could have done anything else. I think he may be right there. I think what really lost me was that I never really felt the tension that something bad could actually happen to these characters. Because from the outset, I'm looking at this and going, this is Bill and a bunch of her friends her age. And they're not really going to kill all of Bill's friends. Like you do something like that, unless it's really going to drop the ball in the next couple of episodes. Like there's an emotional toll to walking in with your friends into a horror house and they're all being killed horribly. Like I got partway through after the, you know, everyone's getting picked off one by one. I'm like, this is going to be an undone in the next 10 minutes. Like they, I just didn't think they would be able to commit to it. And the parallel I was sort of mentally drawing when we saw, um, Bill's uh, friend halfway absorbed into the wood was, um, strangely enough with the first episode of class, um, and minor spoiler here, if you haven't uh, watched the first episode, so, you know, just stick your fingers in your ear for the next 10 seconds and sing very loudly. Um, but uh, one of the main characters of class, Rom, has his leg cut off um, in the later part of the episode. And it is, in one sort of ways, magically repaired. The doctor finds a prosthetic leg and attaches it, but they commit fully over the next couple of episodes to exploring what effect this has on him and how he's trying to sort of regain control of his body and his life and cope with this massive trauma that has happened to him. And it just doesn't feel like, especially since we know it's not a two-part episode and they're going to a space station far off in the future in the next episode, like there, there was never any tension that they would actually do something horrifying to any of these characters, any level of trauma that would be dealt with or addressed moving forward. Like it all needed to be wrapped up very, very quickly. I thought that it might turn out darker than it was with the first couple of student deaths. But as they kept dropping like flies, I was right there with you that there's no way that they can commit to this because the character of Bill has to last at least the rest of this series without being just completely devastated and 
taken apart and psychologically damaged. I was wondering why the pe- the previous tenants weren't restored as well. I can sort of create an explanation in my mind for it. Like, I, like there's enough threads in there that I the explanation I came up with um, to sort of justify it in my head. Looking at the story, I think the explanation I came up with mentally was that she uh, had fully absorbed and survived because she had absorbed all the energy of the previous tenants. Like they were already long gone, but because she had not finished consuming uh bill and all of the uh tenants who were currently in there was like still a possibility that she could release them um and that they wouldn't be fully consumed it doesn't quite i guess that's fair it, yeah it's like it's definitely you i had to invent a lot of that and like hope that it made sense from an in-universe perspective um but it could have it could have been expanded on a tiny bit one thing that I did to myself that interfered with my ability to enjoy the episode was I read up too much about it. Um, mm-hmm. We talked last week about the binaural audio format uh, that this thing is available on the BBC iPlayer, which I have not found any information about where it is legitimately available on any other continent. So uh, good on I you, uh, Brits. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it is. Uh, but the fact that they made the soundscape such an important part of this episode. When they, when you hear the knocking and you hear the creaking and all of the other audio cues in the episode that are supposed to be really creepy and probably sounded doubly so um, in a surround sound kind of format, I'm just sitting here going, "Okay, that's for the that that that's for the audio. That's 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 creepy audio." I I it I it threw me out of the story. Because I was paying way too much attention to it. I thought the soundscape was fairly solid for your standard episode. Um, They definitely built up the soundscape uh, enough that I could follow along with what was happening. But it definitely was constantly in the back of my mind of, so in the binaural version, you're going to be able to hear the pitter-patter coming from slightly above. You're going to hear the knocks resounding all around you. You're going to hear uh, the tuning fork over in your right ear and you're going to hear the creak of the wood in your left ear. And it was definitely something I always felt like I was missing out on a full experience with it. Uh, So BBC America, get the rights. Let us enjoy the binaural version too, please. Please. What about you, Rachel? Were you watching the episode and saying, I wonder what direction I'd be hearing this sound from? Nope. I I wasn't even thinking about it at all. So it wasn't a distraction for you at all? No, no. Let this be a lesson to you, fandom. Don't study the source material too much. But the vault. I love reading up on the vault theories. I think people have some really fun ideas. But after this episode, I think I'm fairly committed to my theory. Does your theory begin with the letter M? It does, in fact, begin with the letter M. Which one? Which one? (laughs) That one is an interesting question. I don't imagine... I bet it's Eric Roberts. (laughs) 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 If they they did that, 
I uh, yeah, I would die laughing. If they managed to keep that a secret this long, I would die purely of being impressed with their ability to do that. But I would probably put my money on Missy just because it doesn't seem like a very uh, John Sim thing to do to express your emotions via Pop Goes the Weasel on the piano. I don't know. He's he's used music to express his feelings before. Oh, maybe he would. Now you're making me really question myself here. Let me know. Do you guys think it, it could be someone else in there at this point? Absolutely. Oh, really? What well, are your theories? I, I don't. I don't know who it is. I mean, I think that the master or Missy are the obvious choices. I think we're certainly meant to think that it's them. Yeah, and so it's either you go with that, and there's the mystery of which one it is. So there's enough of a mystery to keep us wondering. But then they could have it be somebody else entirely. The thing that signals that it that we're supposed to believe that it's the master um, is the doctor's attitude toward whoever it is in the vault, uh, the conversation and the, you know, I'm going to tell you the story of the day I had and a bunch of kids got eaten and uh, and, you know, pop goes the weasel, you know. So the person inside there we're supposed to think is a little bit crazy or a little bit sadistic or just uh loves macabre stories and that sort of indicates master to me but yeah i'm with rachel it's almost too obvious i think that it, if it's the master slash missy i'm leaning toward the master only because of the shot from the trailer in that dark with him looking sort of turning around to the side and i feel like that could have been in the vault See, I'm leaning towards Missy because of the other shot in the trailer of her lying surrounded um, by those pillars that looks like she is sort of imprisoned in them. So prisons within prisons seems like a very Time Lordy thing to do. That's why I'm leaning that way. But also, like, it does seem very obvious. But then again, they were calling the master's new regeneration Missy as a misdirect. Like... Uh, my level of thinking that things can be overly complicated has sort of been dulled a little bit by the last couple of seasons. They, they're they not really hiding their cards and shuffling the deck. You know, it's just sort of a little hand tilt, a little, little nod, I think. Well, maybe the vault is kind of... Well, it's going to be a misdirection if it's somebody other than the Master at this point, or... It could be just a distraction to the real story that's going on, the, the, the real game that Stephen Moffat is playing, which he has been known to do before. That's true. The question, hiding in plain sight, who's in the vault? No, <laughs> that's, that's not the question. Nope. No. But- uh, my last thought about Knock Knock is that, and maybe we can segue from this into how into looking at the first third of series 10 so far, but I think in terms of just basic plot and basic type of story that you're telling, and maybe it's because I'm catching up on Verity and uh, in their episode about Smile, they wouldn't stop talking about mashed potatoes. They uh, drew all <laughs> kinds of tortured analogies to different kinds of mashed potatoes and such. <laughs> um, but this does feel like meat and potatoes 
Doctor Who, like uh, one protein and two square veggies or whatever. You know, this season has been, and Stephen Moffat's said this in a couple of interviews at least, is that this is sort of back to basics Doctor Who. And as for the first time this season, as I was watching Knock Knock, I was like, yeah, this really does feel like back to basics Doctor Who. And I'm not sure how down with that I am. I'm thrilled with the Doctor and Bill, and I'm thrilled with the production values. The stories, is this what the series needs to be doing right now to sort of recapture fans? Or it, or is it just sort of retreading old ground more than it needs to? I don't really think it's a competition between those two values. I think that it is very much a meat and potatoes episode of Doctor Who. I think whether or not this is just because this is the story Mike Bartlett wanted to tell or whether there was a particular aim in mind for it. Um, it's a sort of classic story. You know, there's a threat, there's uh, references to existing genre tropes. Uh, it's an alien in the end. And there's the nod to the ongoing season-long mystery. Um, I think that Personally, I don't think it's exactly what you need to recapture uh, old viewers. I think Sarah Dollard's episode Thin Ice and the incredibly complex things that she was doing and that she accomplished very simply and directly helped recapture viewers more because it, it addressed Doctor Who from a new and different perspective that people had been craving. And I think this is a solid, enjoyable episode. Um, I think it's just, you know, your standard fill out your 12 episodes a season kind of episode that certain people are going to like, but doesn't exactly break new ground for Doctor Who. Rachel, you're more excited about this season than you have been uh, for previous ones. What is it that's working for you about it? I'm really actually enjoying that the through line has been separated out from the stories and that each individual story so far, at least, has been able to live and breathe on its own. And then we get this little side piece with the vault mystery at the end, and it doesn't kind of interfere with this individual storytelling. Some people may disagree with that in terms of what they like, but I I've liked it this way and I, I think that it allows for a variety of different stories that are siloed in a lot of ways that are able to kind of develop these individual worlds on their own and we can enjoy them for the time that we're in them. I would agree with that. I do think, though, that there has been a greater attention this season to making sure that the development of the relationship between uh, the Doctor and Bill is a lot more consistent than it has been with previous companions. I would uh, agree with that too. Yeah, because I think one of the things that really made it hard for me to commit to Clara in the beginning was that everything seemed very jumpy in terms of developing her relationship with the Doctor. And things really did 180s at certain points. Uh, and it was almost like a new relationship at the start of every season. You know, it didn't feel very consistent between each of them, but 
every single episode that has come out has been very solid in terms of developing the relationship between Bill and the doctor. And they make a sort of logical sense episode to episode. Um, The one caveat I'd have to that is that there was a big thing about memory wipes are bad in episode one. And then episode two is like, yay, memory wipes solve everything. Uh, But that's a small caveat in that overall, I think they're doing a good job introducing Bill to this world, introducing new concepts to her and having her be an active, challenging voice uh, to establish her own mark on the show. Uh, And she has really unique and interesting reactions to the different problems and moral conversations that this show brings up. So I've really appreciated that level of consistency in Series 10 so far. Yeah, and especially in um, Knock Knock when they're split up for a good portion of the episode, and yet you still sort of get their dynamic there because they're doing it kind of with the other people that are there and the way that it's directed and the cuts back and forth, it's almost as if they're in the same room. Exactly. And there's very much a sort of, you get the impression that the doctors and Bill's adventures have really had an impact on Bill and the way that she approaches situations now. You know, she was uh, logical to an extent uh, in her first episode and the way that she's approaching uh, this problem with this puddle and this girl that are following her around. And she, you know, at least figures out this is strange. This is unusual. I've talked with a doctor about this before, and he's the person I need right now to help solve this. And he run, she runs into his office. Um, this episode, you really see her approach it as, in terms of how do you respond to an emergency uh, in the way that you do in the Doctor Who universe to survive? Like, She figures out, okay, we need to get out of here. The tower was somewhat positioned behind us, so we can probably get to the tower to find an escape from here. Let's stay away from the bugs. Let's climb up on top of things. Let's interrogate the situation and point out that there are some logical inconsistencies between this girl's father bringing her bugs and also how could he be her father if he has continued to age and she has been frozen in place. So I thought that was really interesting to see how already you can see the doctor's impact on the way she thinks about problems and problem solving. Getting back to something Rachel said about the focusing on the character development, the last season had a whole lot of efforts to mix it up, do some more avant-garde storytelling, really break the format. And at its height, you had Heaven Sent, At its depth, you had sleep no more. (laughs) And I guess you can't get all that radical and experimental if you're trying to establish a strong relationship between uh, your lead characters who are meeting each other for the first time. And that is protecting us from a sleep no more, I suppose. I think you probably could go a little avant-garde with the format. It just requires a particular attention to detail you know i think hellbent in part works because you already know that there is such a strong relationship between the doctor and clara um and that this is both his personal torture uh, and his grief acting on him i think that it's harder to do it right now at the beginning of the season um but not impossible uh but it does also mean that 
I think people are a little bit more reluctant to try episodes like Sleep No More. And to be fair, I think an avant-garde episode like Sleep No More could have worked. I think there was a combination of problems of making sure the avant-garde format works for viewers and also making sure that the plot makes a certain amount of sense, uh, which I think Sleep No More uh, was a little bit too vague about what was going on to the point that it's incredibly hard to keep track and there are so many loose threads uh, that you end up feeling more confused by the episode than contemplative. So we haven't even talked about David Suchet's performance in this episode. Oh. Um, I, you know, I think that sometimes you're watching something and you're not sure um, why a, an actor of a certain caliber is in it until you see a particular scene and you're like, oh, okay. And I think that was definitely the case here in that kind of penultimate scene. That's a real good point because he, he really wasn't doing anything all that innovative or no. super creepy up until then. Yep. Yeah, even though I wasn't a particular fan of the way the plot was resolved, uh, he really just absolutely killed that final scene. You know, just really, in, really stunning performance between the, the creepy landlord into the grieving son and the sort of hell-bent persona who was committed to doing anything and everything to keep his mother alive. So I thought he was uh, exceptional in this episode. Yeah, I thought uh, I thought at first, you know, this might be the episode that I might try to get my mom to watch Doctor Who because she was a big Hercule Poirot fan. And then creepy. No, nope, uh, might people. not want to ruin it for her. Yeah, <laughs> creepy, creepy people eating cockroaches and wooden wooden women. It's nah, not not going to work. But yeah, he was fantastic. <laughs> he was. I have a final question for the two of you if you don't mind four episodes in can you pick a favorite so far easily thin ice definitely definitely how about you chip it's a tough call for me between thin ice and the pilot but i think i'll go with thin ice as well three for three sarah dollard you're on our team (laughs) definitely definitely catering to exactly the type of who i want to see Oh, and on that note, we'll be back in just a moment. So in the last week, the Incomparable Network has just exploded with podcasts, almost 20 released, if you've got some extra time. The TV podcast is blowing up with Arrow, The Flash, Supergirl, The Expanse, Season 1, and Knock Knock. That's on the Flashcast for Doctor Who. On the main podcast at The Incomparable, they review Season 2 of Humans. And there are even more podcasts about pizza toppings, Beverly Cleary, and pro wrestling. All this and more at TheIncomparable.com. So next week on This Week in Time Travel, uh, Jamie Matheson, one of my favorite Doctor Who writers, is back with Oxygen, which is not a Jean-Michael Jarre album, but it's an actual, like, episode of Doctor Who. Thanks for joining us on This Week in Time Travel. You can find us online at thisweekintimetravel.com. We're also on Twitter at DRWhoThisWeek. No punctuation. 
You can find Chip on Twitter at numeral two minute time lord. You can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at Whovian Feminism. And you can find Rachel on Twitter at rmiriam. We're also on Facebook too. Please like our podcast. Please share our podcast. Please review our podcast because that is the currency of this realm. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us again. It was my pleasure. Jason Snell is the guy who runs the network and lets us play with his toys. Our theme music was written by Christopher Breen, and our podcast logo was designed by David J. Lore. We will see you next week on This Week in Time Travel. Thanks, all. Thanks, all.